Welcome to Inside the Archives. I'm your host, Marty Rosenbaum, XRT's digital content producer and social media guy. I grew up in an era where the Beatles were already known as the greatest rock and roll band of all time. Heck, they're the greatest band of all time. There are bands, mostly pop bands, that seemingly grab the attention of the nation, but not to the level of Beatlemania. I didn't grow up in a time where a rock and roll band like the Beatles grabbed the attention and sustained it and fundamentally changed the culture of the country. Bands came, bands went, but it didn't have the lasting power that the Beatles did. So what I want to understand is what that was like when you were living in that moment. So I figured, who better to ask than you know who? Terry Hemmert, XRT's certified Beatle maniac and host of Breakfast with the Beatles Sundays on XRT from 8 to 10 a.m. We're going to get a first-hand perspective of someone who lives through Beatlemania and in the immediate aftermath of the Beatles breaking up what effect it had during that time period because as someone who grew up during the 90s and early 2000s, I want to hear what it was like and understand how a band like the Beatles, who is now regarded as one of the greatest bands in history, became the greatest bands in history. So we'll be talking with Terry Hemmert about that. We'll also be discussing the latest music news, including the tragic passing of Cranberry's frontwoman Dolores O'Riordan, as well as big-time summer concert announcements, including Pearl Jam's Wrigley Field shows, and I think that's a disappointment, and I've seen some of your comments on Facebook that share that opinion, so we'll dive into that, as well as two hot reunion rumors that came about this past week from some familiar faces that you should be excited about. We'll go over the latest happenings here at XRT. It was a big week for us at XRT, just held our annual listener poll and revealed the results of that, and announced two great nights at Classic Cinema's Tivoli Theater in Downers Grove with Jason Isbell. So we'll dig into that, but before then, let's chat with Terry Hammert. We're now joined by a woman who needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway because she's <laughs> a, you would. a personal a personal hero of mine and a, a legend here at WXRT. Terry Hemmert, host of Breakfast with the Beatles, airing every Sunday from 8 to 10 a.m. and uh, has been hosting the program since 2002. Terry, welcome. Good to be here because you're one of my heroes too. <laughs> oh, I'm flattered. I'm flattered. Well, today we're talking about what else but the Beatles. And I had a question I thought I've of the other day. Prepared. Where are and, my notes? <laughs> uh, You'd be the perfect person to ask. So mm-hmm. I, I'm 29 years old right now. I grew up in an age where the Beatles were already the Beatles. They were rock's biggest band in history, and they already have all the notoriety that still surrounds them today. Mm-hmm. And in my time growing up, there were pop bands who were sensations, who seemingly took over the country for short periods of time, but didn't really fully grasp the nation like the Beatles did. So right. I want to talk to you about Beatlemania and just get your perspective as someone who grew up during that time period, what exactly that was like. Oh, my God. It was amazing. It's like, you know, The Wizard of Oz, when it starts off black and white and then goes to Technicolor. That's what Beatlemania was like for us because things are kind of dreary. It was uh, just a few months after the assassination of JFK, which was like he was the future, you know, this really cool young guy and lots of great ideas and 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 the whole country was in a funk and i was in uh in high school uh sophomore year of high school and i thought man you know it's weird this the country was really weird then it was it was it was very depressing and then all of a sudden there was this talk about this band from england and i didn't think i was going to like them cuz I thought with a bunch of white guys doing R&B covers, which I heard that they did, 
I thought four Pat Boons with funny haircuts and a British accent, no thank you, because <laughs> I was a big soul fanatic. I loved, well, it turns out, all the groups that influenced them and all the artists. You know, they were huge into Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Arthur Alexander, uh, Benny King, people like that, and the Coasters, which was my favorite group up to then. Um, it was a big influence. and But I didn't know that part of it yet. But I thought, oh, geez, I, I'll, I'm going to stick with soul music. I don't need this teeny bopper crap. And uh, they came on Ed Sullivan three weeks in a row. And that was unheard of. You didn't have, and, and this is, okay, now this is how old this all is. You couldn't even videotape it. I mean, you, and they didn't do reruns. So you had to be sitting there Talk about appointment television. You had to be sitting in front of the TV to watch it, which actually, I think, contributed to the mania part here in the United States, that it was real tribal. We all had the same experience at the same time. It was on Sunday evenings. We all went to school the next day like, oh, my God, did you see the Beatles on the... Well, of course, yeah. everybody was just sitting there. And I didn't think I was going to like them, and I was still sitting there because I knew it was going to be big. And I wanted to see it for myself. And I was totally floored. I just went, oh, my God. And then the third week, John Lennon did his version of Twist and Shout, which was an Isley Brothers song. And I really lost it then. I thought, these guys are incredible. Plus, not only did they sound great musically, they had this great energy. They were cute. And they were all dressed in matching suits, yet they each had a very definable uh, personality. You could tell right from the beginning because a lot of groups would be like the the choreography, they'd all move at the same time, and real cheesy, like you could see them practicing in front of mirrors. Not these guys, they were into the music, and they were four different guys, and I, I immediately gravitated towards John Lennon. I just thought he was one of the most incredible people I'd seen up to that point in my life. And uh, the fact that they were on three weeks in a row, by the third week, we were just totally hooked. Never got to see them live. I had tickets to see them in uh, the summer of 1966. They were going to play Crosley Field in Cincinnati. I was growing up in Ohio. My mom always said, no, you can't go down to Cincinnati. It's 90 miles away. I said, yeah, but Mrs. Overholzer's driving. Nope, 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 nope. You know, but finally, senior in high school, she goes, okay, you can go. So I bought my ticket. I had a ride. I was all ready to go. And I won some junior achievement award that I had to go to the national convention for it that week. <laughs> and I, I thought, well, I'll see them next year. And of course, they never toured again. But Beatlemania was more than just uh, something, because I was hooked to the radio. I mean, I was listening to the radio all the time. And uh, WING in Dayton, this top 40 station that played a lot of R&B, which is one of the reasons I was such an R&B nut, because I heard a lot of it that you didn't hear out here on CFL or LS, a lot more R&B. So, uh, and they went nuts over the Beatles too. But it added an excitement that was above and beyond the band. I mean, and this happened not just in Little Pickle, Ohio, but it happened all over the world, where the Beatles were more than just a band putting out great records. They were a connection. Uh, for one thing, being in Piqua, as much as I love and still love Piqua, I was always curious what the heck's going on outside of the city limits. And this was my connection. 
then all of a sudden I was a Beatle maniac, just like thousands of other people. I had an English pen pal, you know, and it was just like the thing to do. And uh, go to the magazine stand once a month and take my babysitting money and pick out, you know, two or three magazines with articles on the Beatles. And it really connected us to other people, other cities, you know, and, and, and we had this common experience. And then right there in this little town, which I think is representative of a lot of Beatle fans' experience, it connected me to other people. I had new friends because of the Beatles. There were people that I was friendly with, but we weren't tight until the Beatles. And all of a sudden we had this bond. And then I thought, I want to be in a band. So I started a group. There were four of us gals. We each had our own favorite Beatle. <laughs> that was John, of course. And, uh, and then we morphed from that into uh, doing a guest thing with a pre-existing band because we didn't have the instruments. We didn't have drums and electric guitars. I mean, my parents weren't going to spring for an electric guitar and an amplifier. <laughs> they weren't crazy. Uh, but, but we eventually you know, went from white teen drop-ins and stuff and people's slumber parties to have, actually having gigs and mm -hmm. playing battles of the bands and stuff. And it, it was really exciting. It really gave us something to do. And and uh, I had made lifelong friends from the, you know, there's one I still keep in touch with. Another one passed away years ago. And it was really hard because we were like sisters. It was really a, a tight connection. And then the Beatles inspired us to start writing. So I started writing songs. And then by the time I went off to college, Elmhurst College, I hooked up with these other three women. And we were big Beatle fans. And we were sitting around talking about, we should have a band. Yeah, let's do it. And then I went and got us a booking. And I said, hey, and we're going to be called The Buckets. And I said, hey, I got The Buckets a booking. And they went, what? And we didn't really know if the other three could sing, but we were like tight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it turns out all four of us could <laughs> sing. And we had uh, quite a wonderful, brief, but exciting little career there at Elmhurst. And, uh, and, and I think that's a big part of Beatlemania that doesn't get discussed is is how it changed our lives and and uh and the beatles were really aware of this too it was like a community uh and they were really good to their fans that way they had a respect for their fans that you didn't see before that it wasn't cheesy like the other stars you know and and i've talked to okay here we go i've talked to paul mccartney about this and the fact that that inspired us to do our own thing not just to mimic the Beatles, that's where you start, just like they started by mimicking Elvis and Little Richard, but then they did something original. And that's one of the messages we got to the, from them. Let's start with the Beatles as our influence and then let's figure out where we go, where we put our print on it. And that was just unheard of in rock and roll at the time with pop groups and all that stuff. So the, the influence was great. I think part of the appeal of the Beatles, because you look at statistically, and the sale of guitars and drums went through the roof. Everybody wanted to be in a band. And I know having two brothers, they wanted to be in bands because they wanted to meet girls. But, <laughs> but a lot of us wanted to be in bands. Well, that's why the Beatles joined a band. <laughs> but come to think of it. But uh, the other part of that is that it, there was a connection with those four guys. And I remember being really aware of that the first time I saw them on TV. And I had never seen that before. This didn't look like performers. This looked like four guys who were like, oh my God, we're playing in America. We made it. And and how much they loved the music they were playing. It just showed. You can't fake that. And I think the camaraderie that they showed, everybody wants to be in a band. There's a slogan I use, um, sort of paraphrased my mom and took it in a different direction. But uh, when I talk about music education, how important it is that every kid wants to be 
in a gang. It can either be a street gang or it can be a choir. We've got to provide the choir so that's an option, so they don't get messed up in a street gang. And, and to us, the Beatles were that choir. Yeah. We wanted to be connected. Yeah. I wanted to make those kind of friendships where you were tight, spent a lot of time together because you do when you rehearse, and how we shared this passion for the music, like the Beatles shared their passion for the music that inspired them. And I'm still close to all the other three buckets. We yeah. call ourselves Bucket Sisters. <laughs> that was 1968. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and it goes on. And I think you made a good point about a lot of groups make it really big. They're the big sensation, and then they fade away. I think why we still care about the Beatles is in addition to the cultural uh, revolution that they sparked, their music was amazing. And the fact that they never rested on their laurels. You could spend a day going through their albums, do a chronology starting with Please Please Me and end up with Abbey Road. And, you know, maybe if they'd stopped after help or just stayed in that place, we would have outgrown them. But they were growing up with us. It's another thing, part of the baby boom experience, is the Beatles came out when a lot of us were in high school, prime age for that, very susceptible to that kind of charm and fun. And then just about the time, because my mom kept saying, quit buying Beatles stuff because you're going to throw it away when you go to college. Well, when I went off to college, they came out with Sgt. Pepper. Okay, these guys are really interesting. <laughs> They're still really good. And then when I graduated college, they broke up. And it was just like, it, it was our lives, those of us in that age group, our lives were just right in line with their progression. Right. Well, and that's a fascinating point I never considered before, is how it went beyond the music in the sense of mm. the camaraderie that it brings the community. As you said beforehand, yeah. you connected with people you never spoke to before. Oh, exactly. And you made lifelong friends out of it. Yes. And I think gr growing up, when I was growing up in the 90s, you would see pop bands like that and people would form a bond over it but it wouldn't go past that that would really be the whole talking point mm. of your friendship or your relationship with mm -hmm. someone yeah and in order to gravitate beyond that it seemed like there needed to be that natural next step like the Beatles were taking evolving mm. you know sound and their style and the way right. that they um, held themselves in the media have you seen any other artists that's even come remotely close to replicating that type of progression uh, not as well as they did it. I think the Stones, and they were contemporaries, of course, of the Beatles, I think they went through a lot of progressions, and they came out with some really interesting stuff, and they're still together. Maybe that's one of the reasons the Beatles haunt us so much, because they broke up when mm -hmm. they did. They didn't stay together. Yet the interest uh, in going to see Paul and Ringo is still big, and I love going because I look around the audience, and it's all different age groups. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing that Talking to Paul about this, uh, what I meant to say before, too, is Paul was very aware of how the Beatles changed people's lives, and he was in awe of it. He was really uh, humble about it. Uh, to him, it was a, a privilege and a source of pride uh, that he was part of something that meant so much to so many people and changed so many li lives. But, but I've asked him, too, about the variety of age groups, the diversity of age groups and generations, and he loves that. He said, I look out in the audience, and the little kids there just come along with their parents. They're, you know, I can watch their lips. They're singing the same, you know, lyrics I'm singing, you know. And uh, I, I was approached the other night at a restaurant by a fourth grader 
who uh, this Sunday I will play Here Comes the Sun for her because she came over the table with a napkin and a pen, wanted an autograph. She listens to Breakfast with the Beatles every Sunday. And uh, luckily I had my John Lennon cap with me, so I put it on her <laughs> and we posed for a picture together and I signed her napkin and asked her what she wanted to hear and without hesitation, Here Comes the Sun. So I'm going to play it for her this Sunday. But uh, I, I'm in awe of that because to me that's really great art when you transcend generations, right. when it's not just a fad. Because the Beatles aren't a fad anymore. I mean, fourth graders aren't like, oh, golly, the Beatles. But you'll see individual kids in each grade, or I'll go to a high school and speak, and there are a couple hardcore Beatle fans, you know. And that's really cool. It's almost like underground now. Right. But well, it's very cool. And that popularity, like you said, transcends generations. Mm -hmm. I read uh, before this recording that when the Beatles first came to America, those first nine days were there on the Ed Sullivan Show, doing the tapings, that Americans bought more than 2 million Beatles records and more than $2.5 million worth of Beatles merchandise mm -hmm. just in that nine-day period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it literally took over the country. Oh, my gosh. And the merchandise was <laughs> incredibly weird. Beetle wigs, beetle <laughs> talcum powder, beetle cards. Like I collected baseball cards as a kid, and all of a sudden I'm buying beetle cards, the same size, <laughs> same funky uh uh, gum smell on it, but, right. you know, uh, and and that was really fun. And like we would take our little pittance of babysitting money—that's the only source of income for a lot of us—and go to the dime store and buy all kinds of stuff. I bought this beetle tray that I still have. Thirty-five cents—that's what it cost. That's an hour of babysitting back then. My mom said, why'd you buy that for? That's a whole hour of babysitting money. Because I want this. I still have it. And one time, uh, my folks came a couple times to Beetle Fest just to see what was wrong with their daughters and now their grandchildren. They were, in the, you know, getting into it. And mom was sitting out there during the auction. And she was always telling me, don't spend your money on Beetle stuff. You're going to throw it away. And I held up one of those trays and I said, it was the auction. I said, mom. I bought this for 35 cents at Murphy's Five and Dime, and you gave me grief for it. You should have given me about five bucks, and I would have bought all of them. And then you could bring them to Beetle Fest here and sell them. Let's see how much it goes for. It won't be 35 cents. And, of course, it went for, like, you know, $100 or something outrageous thing. And I was giving her a little grief and mm -hmm. all in good fun, and she was laughing. But every so often I'd pick up something. Mom, I wanted to buy this one, so you wouldn't let me. You said, no, I want you to buy uh, that nice ring over there. I said, I don't have that ring anymore. I would have this if I <laughs> bought it. Uh, but it, it's amazing. But the big thing, though, the big part of the picture for, for myself was the Beatles were the reason I got into radio mm -hmm. because I was already glued to the radio. I loved music. I was buying records and classical music, too. And, and I really uh, was a record junk. I had the biggest record collection in my class. You know, I was always that way. And one day I saw a picture of Jim Stagg, who was a Cleveland disc jockey at the time, who later came to Chicago, worked at WCFL. And uh, Jim was interviewing Ringo. And the light bulb went off. I mean, I really remember seeing that picture because I was in study hall and I had my Beatle magazine inside my textbook to make it look like I was studying. And I saw that picture and, and I told Ringo this story once too and he laughed. He thought I was crazy. Uh, call security. Uh, but no, I, I looked at that and I thought, 
that's it. If I become a disc jockey, I can hang out with the Beatles because I had no interest in chasing them down the street or grabbing their hair or screaming. In fact, that's one thing I was almost afraid of going to the concerts because there was just so much screaming, mm -hmm. and I just thought that was ridiculous. Uh, but uh, I wanted to hear them. You know, I wanted to hear the music. Uh, but I saw that, and I thought, this makes perfectly good sense because I listen to the radio all the time. I love it. I, I know all the DJs. You know, I met a couple, and I felt like I was going to pass out. I was so excited to meet them, and uh, it, they were stars to me. They were like part of the music scene, and I didn't stop and think that there weren't any women on the air. Good thing, because if I'd given a lot of thought, maybe I would have moved on to the next career goal. But I went to Elmhurst College, went to the radio station, said I want to do a rock and roll show. And they said, oh, girls can't do that. We'll let you do a mood music show. So I started playing Lennon-McCartney instrumentals and reciting poetry over them. <laughs> <laughs> and it got such a following that they finally had to relent. It probably caught me. people's eyes. Yeah, it was. And really, ears. Yeah, yeah. They were really like, oh, this is really weird. I like this. Yeah. And then uh, I finally got a rock show. And, uh, and then when I graduated, then I found out that they still weren't putting women on the air. But I was just stubborn. You know, it's stubborn German. You yeah. Know. Well, as they say, the rest is history, and we're here talking right now after all these years of hosting Breakfast with the Beatles and being a yeah. DJ at XRT. I, this was going to come later on in the conversation, but I feel like it's pertinent to ask okay. right now. Um, 1980, the year that everything changed. Yeah. John Lennon's cool. death, how did that affect you both personally and as a established radio professional at that point? That was really uh, the hardest day I've ever had on the air. Well, now second at 9-11, that was just a nightmare. I remember getting the call, first call at 10 o'clock that night, and then the phone just rang off the hook. I just sat there and had my finger on the thing. It's before cell phones, of course. And, uh, and I went into, I was teaching in the mornings, like one day a week at Columbia, because I was on uh, later in the afternoon. So I went to class, and they didn't think I was going to show up, but they showed up just in case. And I walked in, and they all started crying, and I started crying. <laughs> and, and then somebody did an oral report on Sam Cooke, and I'll never forget it. He put the needle on the record and played A Change Is Gonna Come. And we all started crying again. You know, it was just, oh. So then I had to go out to Belmont and Cicero to do my show. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, no cell phones. I just show up, and I find out that all three network TV news people, you know, representative of each station is out there to interview me. I'm like, great. I said, give me a few minutes alone, okay? Cause, and I went in and shut the door, and I wrote a script because I thought if I just get on the air and start talking, I'm going to lose it. So I just wrote a little script that ended up, we sent out hundreds of copies. People were writing and wanting a copy of it. And uh, I just wanted to, usually I don't script myself, but for that I thought I need to because I will lose it. And uh, and then the news people came in and interviewed me, and it was just so surreal. It was just bizarre. And then I went on the air, and we used to have a speakerphone, and one of the news reporters just didn't get it. He said, I don't know why, you know, he's a rock star. You know, why is, this is like a spiritual leader or somebody historic dying. And I said, yeah. I said, why don't you come on in, because I like this guy. I knew he's, his work. And why don't you come in and listen to the people on the speakerphone? He sat on the floor in the corner for a couple hours and listened. And his reporting was, um, he nailed it. Mm -hmm. He nailed it. He got it from listening to all these people calling me and unloading. 
why John Lennon was so special. But that also was a, a turning point in my career because I, um, I realized how important we all were to each other. I realized how people relied on the radio, not only for getting the news about this, but processing it. You know, how all of a sudden my role wasn't just to come in and play records and say something about it. It was to comfort and to console and to counsel. You know, uh, it's like giving a eulogy at a funeral. You mm -hmm. know, you're there for a purpose, to help people make sense of the senseless, you know. And uh, and this was very senseless because it just shouldn't have happened. It was horrible. And it was right around that time that they put me on morning drive for four weeks, which turned into 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, and one of the reasons was because our morning guy quit with no notice and they wanted to look for somebody else. They said, do it for four weeks to get us through it and then you can go back to your afternoon shift and then, you know. And, and then my sister died in a car accident six weeks after John died. And Yoko and I have actually talked about this, about how those two things are so connected because the very last thing we did together was go around Piqua and looking for any John Lennon stuff for sale because it was right it was like early in December so Christmas time it was mm -hmm. uh, on everybody's mind still and then a couple weeks later she was gone and she bought Double Fantasy on a cassette and I made sure I got that <laughs> you know and, and it, it just and I told Yoko about that and and I thought she was just going to kind of maybe well let's talk about John's more but she was like moved by that and she got it and, you know, uh, and, uh, man, but the Beatles um, were always there to help us through that stuff, too. I mean, you know, uh, songs like In My Life, we used that, the lyrics of that for my sister's mass card. Mm -hmm. My mom said, we need a poem. I said, Jody wouldn't know a poem if it bit her in the rear end, you know. And, uh, but how about a Beatle lyric? And she went, no, that's not, you know, appropriate for a mass. And I said, eh. And I went and found some of my old piano music, the with the guitar chords of the Beatles stuff and I brought in In My Life and she read it and she went perfect and that was on the back of the mask card mm -hmm. Joni would have loved that mm -hmm. and I told Yoko that too and, I, and those songs are really healing I mean you know you listen to Golden Slumbers and you got to carry that weight and in the end the love you take is equal to the love you make the very last thing they said to us as a group I mean those things um, it's not pop music anymore it's, it's spiritual it's like hems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they delivered a message with all they their really songs. They really did, and love. And up to then, it was puppy love. All, and they started out doing, too, I want to hold your hand, please please me. But they grew as artists and, and, and spoke to us about a, a very powerful universal love. And uh, right at the same time, Dr. King was talking to us about human rights and equality. And uh, Bobby Kennedy was talking about the poor are, you know, and, and we were being opened up to all these ideas all at the same time. And the Beatles' music was like a soundtrack for that because it tied in with that. The, and this is what good art does. It, it reflects what's going on. So you almost have like a journal about the times. But it also influences. It's influenced by the times, and then in turn it influences what's going on. And those songs like Imagine, those songs are anthems, you know. It's like We Shall Overcome. You know, music is so powerful, that's why they have it at funerals and why they have it at big marches, why Peter, Paul, Mary sang at the March on Washington. You know, um, 
those songs are powerful and they articulate in a way a speech or a written essay can't. Uh, music is very powerful because it hits your emotions in your head all at the same time and sometimes gets your back feeling emotions so you can dance to all yeah. the <laughs> Thanks again to Terry Hammert for joining us this week on Inside the Archives. You can catch part two of our conversation on the very next episode of Inside the Archives. We'll dive deeper into the phenomenon of Beatlemania. And I also wanted to get her take on why the younger generation, people who are as young as five, six, seven years old, are still being impacted by the Beatles and by their music today and find out why this band is able to connect so well across generations. So... Great second half of the conversation we have lined up. Be sure to stay tuned to 93XRT.com and following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get the next update for the next episode of Inside the Archives. And now for the latest music headlines. We'd be remiss if we didn't start this week off on a sadder note. Uh, we lost a great musician who had an impact across the rock and roll spectrum with the death of Cranberry's frontwoman, Dolores O'Riordan. She tragically passed away at the age of 46 years old. As of now, the cause of death hasn't been revealed, but police have already said that her death was not suspicious. Her boyfriend, Ole Koletsky, wrote a touching tribute in the days following her passing, saying, My friend, partner, and the love of my life is gone. Koletsky wrote, my heart is broken, and it is beyond repair. Dolores is beautiful. Her art is beautiful. Her family is beautiful. The energy she continues to radiate is undeniable. I'm lost. I miss her so much. I will continue to stumble around this planet for some time, knowing, well, there's no real place for me here now. As someone who didn't become familiar with the music of the Cranberries until I started working at XRT, O'Riordan's voice was identifiable from the get-go. Once I heard it on the radio you knew exactly who it was and the impact that she left across the musical spectrum has been seen with the touching tributes that have taken place to her and at 46 years old it was way too young way too soon for her to pass but moving forward we'll get on a little bit of a happier note summer concert season's right around the corner believe it or not we're only a few months away from being able to throw on sandals and shorts and enjoy the beautiful weather that Chicago has during the summer while hearing some of our favorite bands in incredible outdoor venues. And there is no bigger concert announcement that's come so far than Pearl Jam's return to Wrigley Field for two shows on August 18th and August 20th. When the news first broke on 93XRT.com, I saw on Facebook people were naturally excited that Pearl Jam was going to be returning to the friendly confines, but there are a couple comments that stuck out to me that I wanted to explore a little bit further, saying, why Wrigley? Again, they just played there in 2016. Why do they want to come back so soon? The obvious answer is, well, duh, Eddie Vedder is a big Cubs fan. Why wouldn't he want to play Wrigley Field? That's true. I can understand that argument. But the question that I have is, has the allure of a Wrigley Field show worn off at this point? For most touring acts, I don't think it has. If you're a band that has never played Wrigley Field before or maybe making their second appearance at Wrigley Field, I think it's still a magical place, a great place to see a concert. If you're fortunate enough to be able to go on the field during a concert, the Wrigley Field experience is one of the coolest ones you can have. Just being able to look out, see the giant scoreboard, uh, walk the infield where so much history has taken place. And if you're a Cubs fan... Come on, you got to admit, it's pretty darn cool. I'm sure Fenway Park has an experience like that as well, but being locally here in Chicago, 
Wrigley Field is our go-to venue for that type of experience. So I think on the whole, no. Wrigley Field is still a great place to see a show. I wouldn't want to push bands away from playing there, but you get into the issue what Pearl Jam has right now is having just played there in 2016, making a concert DVD out of both those shows of their time period, releasing that earlier this year, or in 2017, now that we're in 2018, and now announcing two more shows almost two years to the date after those took place. You got to wonder, you really want to do this again? You know, how many times are you going to be able to do this before the allure of it wears off, before it doesn't become as special of an experience? Now, I think a band like Pearl Jam, to their credit, has a devoted enough following, has a deep enough catalog that they're going to be producing the same shows uh, as they did in 2016 when they were here. But if they schedule two more shows in Wrigley Field two years from now, I think people are going to look at it, and you may get those casual fans that say, eh, I don't really want to check this out. They've been doing this enough to where this isn't a can't-miss experience. It's not once in a lifetime because they've already shown that they're willing to repeat that. So the question that I counter is, you know, if there's a band like U2 coming to Chicago, would you want to see them play in the United Center every single time? Would you want to see the Rolling Stones play Soldier Field every time they're in Chicago? I think the answer to that is no. There is variance is good for bands. It's what makes concerts fun in different settings. So for me, it was a little bit disappointing to see the return to Wrigley Field for a band like Pearl Jam that's able to fill a large capacity venue to go back to a reliable place like Wrigley Field. That being said, it's still going to be a great show. And if you haven't been to Wrigley Field for a concert, you can do much worse than seeing Pearl Jam at Wrigley Field. So once again, those shows are August 18th and August 20th. Just a couple weeks after Lollapalooza, so if Lala isn't for you or you're recovered from Lollapalooza and want to continue on with your concert season, you got a good place to go. Another major tour that was announced this summer was Jack White. We all knew that the tour was coming as he announced his latest album, Boarding House Reach, but we didn't get dates up until recently. And one glaring omission that you guys all are aware of at this point is he doesn't have a Chicago date on it at all. And dun 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 He's missing a Chicago date near August when a certain festival tends to take place in Grant Park every year. And Jack White being Jack White certainly seems like the artist that could fill a major void on a top line of a festival lineup slot. So, just speculating here, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him at said festival in Grant Park on the weekend of August 3rd to August 6th. But there's nothing official. I could be completely wrong. As long as he's coming to Chicago at a certain point, you bet I'll be there, and you bet it's going to be a great show. We also had two reunion rumors that have started to pick up steam over the past week, which would make a lot of people very happy if this actually comes to fruition. The first is Genesis. Uh, Both Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford have spoken about the positive relationship that they share with Tony Banks over the past few years, saying, yeah, yeah, if the time's right, we would love to be able to tour and play music again, but... We're going to do it if the time's right. Well, in a recent interview with another radio station, Tony Banks was asked about a Genesis reunion and what he thought about it. And he said, we don't rule it out. It'd be fun to try. He also added that Mike Rutherford and him see each other all the time and get on very well. And he recently attended a Phil Collins solo concert and said that his voice sounded great. So adding this on to Rutherford and Collins' comments over the past couple years, 
about the relationship that they have with one another and how it could be fun in the future. I think it, I think the timing's looking good for a Genesis reunion. Now there's nothing concrete that is said. This is actually happening. The band's getting back together and touring during these dates. They're going to go on an X-City tour, but something to definitely keep an eye on in the future. Locally, there's another band whose reunion rumors have begun to come to fruition in the past week, and that's the Smashing Pumpkins. Now, let's take a step back. Smashing Pumpkins have toured in recent years, but it's been Billy Corgan joined by other musicians. Jimmy Chamberlain was a part of that initial reunion a couple years back, but their original lineup of Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, Darcy Retsky, and Billy Corgan haven't toured together in a long time. Well, Darcy Retsky spoke to a music blog and was asked about the Smashing Pumpkins reunion and dropped a bombshell. She said that a reunion tour featuring the original lineup, Billy Corgan, James Eha, and Jimmy Chamberlain is happening this summer. But there's a glaring omission. She's not going to be a part of it. Retsky said she was contacted and told that the band had decided to go in a different direction for their bassist on an upcoming tour, but the original three-quarters of the original lineup will be touring starting the summer. There hasn't been any official announcement with this one, as there wasn't with Genesis, but in a recent Instagram post, Billy Corgan posted a photo of himself alongside Chamberlain and Eha in the studio together, so it leads one to believe that they are, in fact, up to something, and the chances of us seeing three-quarters of the original Smashing Pumpkins lineup is pretty high at this point, so... Both Genesis and Smashing Pumpkins reunion rumors have begun to pop up, and if those do come to fruition, that'd be pretty darn cool. So before we wrap things up, let's shift gears and take a look at what's happening here at XRT this week. And before we go forward, we got to look back because we just had a great week here. We revealed the results of the 2017 XRT listener poll. We held the listener poll gala at City Winery this year. If you tuned in, watch the whole thing on Facebook Live. Thank you for doing so. It was a ton of fun to put together. Tributosaurus, as always, puts on a fantastic show, and their montage of the past year is, is an absolute joy to watch live. So if you get a chance to check them out, they're able to morph into any band you ask of them, and extremely high talent. So it's cool seeing them there, cool seeing all the XRT DJs together in one place. We don't have that happen too often, so whenever we can get everyone up on stage together and covering Tom Petty as they did this past week. Well, it's certainly a joy to watch. So if you want to find the full results of the listener poll, you can go to 93XRT.com and find that. But I'll just do a quick run-through of who the winners from each category were. For Best Album, Spoon took it home with their record Hot Thoughts. Song of the Year went to Portugal the Man with Feel It Still. Best Concert was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers at Wrigley Field. Your favorite venue of this year was the Chicago Theater. Rookie of the Year went to Alice Merton. Best TV show, Game of Thrones. And finally, the best movie was Wonder Woman. So thanks again for everyone who took part in voting in the Listener Poll and watching the Listener Poll Gala. It's one of my favorite events to take part of in the year, and we're glad to be able to offer it to you. Additionally, if you are listening to this on January 26th, as it's being recorded now, or January 27th, you got to turn on XRT soon. This Saturday, January 27th, we're having another all-vinyl Saturday from noon until midnight, and this one has an excellent twist to it. We're doing nothing but album sides. Marty Leonard and I recorded a video this week where he just plucked out three albums that you'll hear, and let's go over them because they're pretty darn cool. One of them was Jimi Hendrix's Are You Experienced? 
Fleetwood Mac rumors and Rolling Stones get your yayas out. Yeah, you'll hear entire album sides from those records this Saturday from noon until midnight. Tune in at 93XRT or on 93XRT.com. It's a great new feature that we've been doing. It'll be our third time doing this, and there's nothing like hearing the crackle of vinyl on radio. And that silence in between songs gives our DJs a heartbreak, but also remind us why listening to albums in their entirety is so cool. We'll also be going back to 1971 on Saturday Morning Flashback this weekend. Some albums that came out that year include Sticky Fingers from the Rolling Stones, Who's Next by The Who, Led Zeppelin IV, L.A. Woman by The Doors, Hunky Dory by David Bowie, and What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. You'll hear that from 9 a.m. until noon. And then once again, from noon until midnight, we'll be doing All Vinyl Saturday, Album Sides. Additionally, we have a live broadcast coming up next Friday, February 2nd, from 6 to 9 a.m. at House of Blues. Join us for the Groundhog Day breakfast broadcast. Lynn and Mary will be having their morning show live at the House of Blues Chicago. And the Slater features special performances from Frank Orrell of Poy Dog Pondering, along with Michael McDermott with his wife Heather Horton. And we got other surprises up our sleeves, too. So if you've never been out to a live broadcast, it's a ton of fun, especially when you can start your Friday morning off with one at the House of Blues in Chicago. Lynn and Mary are excited for it, and they want you to join them, which you can do right now by going to 93XRT.com, finding the contest tab, and entering in to win your place at the Groundhog Day Breakfast Broadcast. That's all we have for today. Thanks again to Terry Hemmer for joining us. You'll be able to catch part two of our conversation about the Beatles and Beatlemania when the next episode of Inside the Archives is released. Until then, I'm Marty Rosenbaum.